very excited to introduce Mustafa Kiol to you. He is a well-known Turkish po political commentator in Turkey and an, also an author. He's based in Istanbul. Um, he's a regular columnist for the Hurriyet Daily News, which is one of Turkey's um, most widely circulated English newspapers. Um, he also writes a regular column for a Turkish newspaper daily called uh, Star and appears regularly on Turkish television uh, political discussion programs. And let's see, he now is also a regular writer for the International York, New York Times. His first book, uh, which came out in 2006, uh, is titled, it's in Turkish, you won't be able to find it unless you read Turkish, but it's titled, in translation, Rethinking the Kurdish Question, What Went Wrong, What Next? And his latest book, um, Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty, about which he will speak today, um, was published in 2011, and you can find it outside at discounted price after his talk. He's going to be um, doing a book signing, so if you would like to buy a copy of the book for yourself or for someone else for the holidays and uh, have him sign it, he will be out there doing that. Um, yes, and he plans to not only uh, speak about his book, but also to have a long question and answer session, so you can ask him anything you want about Turkey, the Middle East, journalism, Islam, etc. Buddhism. <laughs> Which I don't know much. Okay, so uh, join me in welcoming him, please. Sure. I hope this works. It works. Okay, good. Uh, Jeanette, thank you so much. First of all, for this very generous introduction and for the promotion for the book, which always helps the sales. And uh, I should also thank uh, the Dialogue Institute, founded by the Turkish-American community here in Texas, for bringing me all over from Turkey to a series of events, including this one. And I'd like to speak, thank the University of Texas at Austin, uh, also you know, to host this uh, wonderful event here today. And thanks to all of you for coming here. I mean, I'm sure there are more fun things out there you know, in this beautiful afternoon, but you, know, you chose to be here. One also technical question. How is my sound? Is it too deep echoing or is it good? Is it fine? Okay. Is it better now? Too much resonance, right? How is this? Is it better? Is it better? Okay, I'll put it a little down. Is it okay? Okay. Uh, well, these days I'm actually on a long book tour which covers some 30 city, sorry, 30 days and 17 cities which means me and my wife, Riada, are basically, uh, and I should say she's the best book comp tour companion you, know, you could ever imagine. But we're basically changing a hotel every night or every two nights. And I can't even remember some of the cities that we have been to. Uh, but I'll always remember Austin. It's really one of the best cities I've ever seen uh, in a long time. And I'm having these interesting conversations and interactions with people and everywhere I go. But let me tell you, a story from not this trip, but from the very first trip I had to the United States some 15 years ago. Uh, 15 years ago, I was a younger man. I was like a college student, like some of you guys here. And I was excited to see America, you know. And I came here with a few friends of ours. Uh, and a friend of mine who, who used to live in the U.S. took us around and showed us the places uh, from from New York to California. One morning he said, 
let's have breakfast. We were hungry. I said, sure. And he said, let's have breakfast at the McDonald's. I said, like, do you want to eat burgers for breakfast? I don't want to do that. He says, no, no, McDonald's has breakfast. I said, OK, let me see what that is. We went in there and got a breakfast menu. And that was the first time in my life that I saw and tasted pancakes. We didn't have pancakes in Turkey. And he showed me how to put the syrup and the butter, and it sucked all of it, and I tasted it. And I said, like, man, this is the most delicious thing I ever had in my life. I fell in love with pancakes. So next year, I come to the US again, right? And I want to eat pancakes. But I had a little misunderstanding, because I was thinking that pancakes are an exclusive McDonald's product. <laughs> so I was desperate to find a McDonald's before 10.30, because I had learned that they were changing the lunch menu at 10.30, you know, to be able to get the pancakes from McDonald's. And it went on for a few days. I think in the third or fourth day, I was in Manhattan, New York, Manhattan, New York City. I was walking, and I saw a restaurant which said, pancakes. I said, Mm, they stole it from McDonald's. <laughs> it took a while to understand that pancakes are a larger phenomenon than McDonald's. And you, know, you can find it probably everywhere in the US. Uh, and the lesson, though, I took from that story years later was that while a foreign culture might be a little confusing when you meet them for the first time, first impressions can be misleading. And well, if those first impressions are about the cuisine of that different culture, it's not that difficult. You'll sort it out, as I did with the pancakes, as uh, soon as you try. But if you misunderstand the, the culture, the values, the history, the religion of a different civilization, it might be harder to overcome you know, those misunderstandings. And as someone who's in the media, to some extent, uh, I also think that actually we are at a time in which we are very prone to misunderstanding different cultures because of the media. Because the media gives us a lot of information about societies that we have never seen. I mean, you open up the news, you hear news from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Colombia, whatever, you, places that you have never been to. But they inevitably focus on the shocking and the disturbing things that are happening in those societies. They show the most unpleasant facts in, in those different societies and civilizations. In other words, the Muslims, for example, if you want to speak about East-West relations or Muslim world in the US, the Muslims who make the news in the US are generally not the nicest Muslims. You know, some of them are really very fanatic people who have done horrible things in the name of Islam. Uh, or who, who say very fanatic you know, things and hateful things. But the much larger majority of Muslims who don't agree with those radical uh, messages or those violent acts, they don't make the news. They just live their daily life, but they don't shape the image of Islam in the minds of the Americans. But let me tell you one thing. The same dynamic is working on our side as well. In other words... The voices we hear from the West in our part of the world are not the nicest voices most of the time. Uh, here's an example. In 2011, I made a little uh, research to find out which American Christian leader appear, appeared most frequently in the Turkish media. Well, the research was simple. It was a Google search. It took five seconds. 
<laughs> but it turned out that the American Christian figure that really most frequently appeared and really made the news in Turkey most frequently was this gentleman in Florida who wanted to burn a copy of the Quran. I understand it's his constitutional right and I have respects for people's rights, but I also think that something can be your right, but it can still be a little bit rude to do that. So I think it was a little rude thing to burn the scripture of a different, uh, I mean, uh, faith. But whatever, the point is, he was mar- he was a, he's a very marginal figure in the U.S. And the great majority of Christian leaders, opinion leaders, said what he's doing is wrong, he shouldn't do this. But those people who disassociated themselves from uh, that gentleman in Florida, Terry Jones, didn't make the news. So Turks got this impression that there are Christian leaders who are doing this. That is why I believe we should be able to look beyond these media stereotypes uh, a bit deeper into a different culture, a bit deeper into different societies and different civilizations to be able to understand them in a more objective light. And that is one of the reasons I wrote this book, Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty. Because one thing I wanted to do was to show what Islam is to a non-Muslim and to show all the nuances within Islamic thought and Islamic history. And to show that some of the issues that actually Muslims have struggled with throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, are not that different from some of the issues that Christians have struggled throughout the centuries. And some of the problems that have emerged in Islamic civilization actually are not that different than some of the problems that have appeared in the West. For example, today, unfortunately, we have some Muslims who believe that they have exclusive access to truth and they can judge fellow Muslims and even punish them for their heretical beliefs. Well, thank God Christians don't do this anymore, but if you go back to the Middle Ages, you know, it was what Catholicism was for, for many centuries. Actually, me and my wife were recently in Italy for another trip and we visited there a medieval torture museum and it shows a device that the inquisitors used on people to confess their sins or their heresy and so on. When you see that, I mean, you, you run into this very big surprise, like here's a religion whose gospel says, love your enemies, even the enemies. But in, when it get, get mixed with politics and all the, all the temporal issues of that age, it's, some of its manifestations could do this to other people. So... And there were crusaders and inquisitors, all of that are in Christian history. The thing is, Christianity moved beyond that to a great extent. But in today, in the Middle East today, we have some people still who are exactly the same, in the same mindset with the inquisitors of uh, medieval Spain or of the, some of the crusaders. But they, should, they are not the only way to understand Islam. They are not the only manifestations of Islam. And if you ask me, they are not the rightful manifestations of Islam. However, to say that, you know, the people, the bigoted people do not represent our fate doesn't solve all the problems. And I think I also believe that while putting the picture and showing that, you know, there's a spectrum, we should be a little self-critical about our own faith, our own civilization, our own societies, and, you know, look and f- try to find ways to solve those problems. And the problem that I really focus on in my book is not the problem of extremism. I mean, in terms of groups like Al-Qaeda, which attack innocent people, they're so marginal that very few Muslims in the world would condone what they do. They're very marginal. 
And what they're doing, if you ask me, is also against Islamic law. I mean, they launch wars without, without, they launch wars on, for example, in the U.S., and they neglect all the rules of war in Islam, like that non-combatants can never be targets and so on and so forth. So I have those discussions in the book as well. That, that's, that kind of al-Qaeda type of extremist terrorism, that's very marginal, and we condemn it, and okay, that's, that's a problem on the side. But I focus on a more mainstream problem in my book. Still more people coming? Welcome. Are we okay with that? Okay. Here's the one chair here. We can take somebody here. Sure. The carpet looks nice to me, too. I mean, if you just want to just suggest it. Sure. No compulsion. All good? Okay, we're good. So, as I said, I try to focus on a bit more mainstream problem in the Muslim-majority societies of today. The problem with authoritarianism. Uh, I mean, Al-Qaeda is very marginal, but I think authoritarianism is a bit more mainstream attitude in many of the Muslim-majority societies today. And what do I mean by authoritarianism, especially authoritarianism in the name of religion? What do I mean by this? Here's an example. And correct me if I'm wrong. Is there anybody from Saudi Arabia here? Do we have a friend from Saudi Arabia? Okay. You're from Saudi Arabia? Wonderful. Yeah, and so correct me if I'm wrong, because I'll say something about the Saudi institutions. In Saudi Arabia, uh, some of my criticisms towards an authoritarian political and cultural mindset is best manifested in Saudi Arabia, I think. So I sometimes give the example. In Saudi Arabia, there is an institution called the religious police, Mutawa. Uh, and the job of Mutawwa is basically to patrol the streets uh, and enforce what they perceive as Islamic law or the, or the Islamic way of life. They would force, for example, every woman to cover their hair. If you're walking in the streets of Saudi Arabia, you have to cover your hair. The Mutawwa will come and warn you otherwise. They would force shopkeepers to close their shops when the prayer time comes, because when there's the call to prayer five times a day, you have to observe the prayer, and that, therefore shop owners have to close their shops. In, uh, in more parochial areas, until, re- until a few decades ago, they were even forcing every man to go to the mosque and do their prayers when the prayer time comes. Now, when I saw this for the first time, as a fellow Muslim, I said, well, there's something wrong here. Because if I go to the mosque, because the Mutawa tells me to do so, I'm going to the mosque, not to worship God, but to you know, get away from police harassment. Not the fear of God, but the fear of police becomes a motivation for prayer. So it creates some form of hypocrisy. Uh, so I said, there's something wrong with this. I mean, why Saudis are doing this? The, the Saudi Mutawa is doing this. And why do we have this? I mean, can it be possible that Islam commends this, which is very counterproductive if Islam is all about, firstly, about your faith and your heart. I mean, and the system that creates not that, but a more hypocritical attitude. While I was thinking and researching on the Mutawa phenomenon, in Iran there are other examples, like there's the Revolutionary Guards, the Besiege, which also have a tendency to impose what they think as Islam on society. I had then other observation, not from Iran, not from Saudi Arabia, not from Taliban, but from my own country, Turkey. Turkey is a secular republic, so we don't have religious police. We are lucky on that you know, front. Uh, and we don't want religious police, so we're, we're okay. But until very recently, in Turkey, we used to have what I call 
secularism police. What do I mean by that? Because until very recently, there were security officers at the gates of Turkish universities forcing every female student to uncover her hair if she was wearing a headscarf. A meeting like this would not be possible in a Turkish university until a few years ago because there was a ban on headscarf. In order to enter the campus, you have to show your hair, you, take, you have to take your headscarf off and prove that you are a modern uh, French-like you know, ideal Turk that the government wanted you to become. Uh, and also we got the secularism from France, so there's a lot of French-Turkish connection in the 20th century. And with all due respect to France, I mean, they have great cheese and food, everything, but I think their secularism is a little problematic from a liberal perspective. Uh, now, when I saw these together, I said, hmm, there's an interesting parallelism here. In Saudi Arabia, the government tells you to put your headscarf on. In Turkey, the government tells you to put your headscarf off. None of them say, let the woman decide what they're going to wear. It should be every individual's decision to live according to the dictates of her own conscience. She can wear a miniskirt, she can wear a headscarf, that's her decision, and the state and society should respect that. This liberal solution, which I believe in, unfortunately is not the case in Saudi Arabia, or it is becoming the case probably in Turkey. We still are struggling with some of the prejudices in different segments of society. Uh, but Turkish secularism was also very authoritarian. And when I saw this, I said, hmm, maybe the problem in Saudi Arabia and Iran then, therefore, not directly Islam itself, but an authoritarian political culture that happens to be prevalent in that part of the world. And maybe Islam just get, has been interpreted from this within this authoritarian political culture, and that's why they built these like religious police and the revolutionary guards and so on and so forth. That was an aha moment, you know, as you call it here, uh, like to, to move on and make my research. And therefore I got into Islamic jurisprudence, Islamic culture, Islamic history, and tried to understand where the authoritarian aspects of Islamic law, and I would say even the culture that built around that law, come from. And in almost every case that I looked, I realized that most of the troubles from a liberal perspective, most of the authoritarian injunctions and practices in the Islamic world actually come from not directly the roots of religion, the divine roots of religion, the Quran and the prophetic practice, but the culture that was, that was built around it. One good example is misogyny. We have a lot of misogyny in the Middle East. I mean, uh, there is a mindset that regards women as, you know, second-class citizens. They're not as clever as men. They don't deserve to be the heads of state. They don't deserve to be the heads of institutions. They have to obey men and so on and so forth. Uh, and, of course, many people perceive this as what this is what Islam teaches. Uh, however, when you look deep, actually you see that this is actually a patriarchal culture that predates Islam and which has only influenced the interpretation of Islam and unfortunately became a part of it over the centuries. Uh, and there are some clear examples to see this. For example, when you look at the practice called female genital mutilation, a very horrible practice, some Muslims in Northeast Africa, like Egypt and uh, Sudan, practice this religiously, thinking that it's what their religion tells them. But when you look at the sources of Islam, it has nothing to do with Islam. It's a pre-Islamic practice, which is also practiced by the non-Muslims of that part of the world, like the animists. Even some Christians in Ethiopia were practicing female genital mutilation until the 60s. 
uh, which, which also means that to move forward, if you want to move forward in, in terms of women's rights, what we need is not to condemn Islam, but make Muslims realize that some of the practices maybe they attach to are maybe not actually Islamic, that they're just traditions that they can more easily abandon and by be, being loyal to their faith. In Turkey, there are people that we call, there are ladies that we call Islamic feminists. They are making this precise argument. They're saying, we believe in Islam, they uphold the Quran and the prophetic tradition, but they say Islam has been misinterpreted by misogynist men for 14 centuries. Now to move forward, the time to move forward by re-understanding it in the light of a more egalitarian culture. I think that's important to have these distinctions. However, some examples of authoritarianism can be directly coming from religious texts. We should be honest about this. Uh, and what do we mean in, with religious, which religious texts? Here's another example. Again, with all the respect, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, there are a lot of details about social life, but one of the rules is that, that is imposed by the authorities is that women cannot drive cars. This is actually a recent controversy. Actually, there's a now movement, a movement in Saudi Arabia that women drive cars and you know, they're, they're being condemned by some uh, scholars who think that that's uh, unacceptable from an Islamic point of view. But the Saudis are really serious about not allowing women to drive cars. But why? I mean, they drive even in Iran, it's not a problem in Iran, which is another you know, political entity that claims to uh, uphold Islamic law. In Turkey they drive, nobody questions. You know, uh, well. Turkish men sometimes question how well they drive, but you know, that's Turkish misogyny. Let's leave that aside. So, but why the Saudis don't allow women to drive? I mean, I've discussed this with Saudi scholars uh, in Riyadh and elsewhere. And they have different reasonings to, to protect women, blah, blah, but ultimately they come and say, well, there's a hadith, a saying by Prophet Muhammad that women should not drive. <laughs> And so, like, how, what do you mean by that? Like, what, how is it possible? Well, then they quote the hadith. And the hadith in question, the hadith means a saying by Prophet Muhammad. The hadith reads, quote, Do not send women alone to the desert. End of quote. <laughs> do not send women alone to the desert. How should we understand this, right, in the light of the modern age? I asked this question to a Turkish expert on hadiths, Professor Mehmet Görmez, who's the head of the Turkish Directorate of Religious Affairs, Diyanet, as Turks would know. It's the official institution for religion, because Turkey is not really secular, we have official religion too, it's a complicated story, but I'm leaving there aside. But Professor Görmez, an authoritative scholar in Turkey about hadiths, and I, I asked this, like, how do we understand this? He told me, well, the Prophet said so, because at that time, in his 7th century Arabia, there were bandits in the desert between Mecca and Medina. They were attacking every unprotected caravan. Just a few women walking in the desert by themselves would be prey to these people. So the Prophet said something to protect women in a particular context. It's, if you understand the purpose, it's about protection and safety. It's not about imprisoning people so that they cannot travel around by themselves and drive cars. Uh, but if you, this, this depends on how you understand. Are you a blind literalist, which just says this is written this way and no discussion about it, which has a, you know, there's that sort of understanding of Islamic law and history. And today the people that we call the Salafis are the best examples of this, this written this way period, 
Uh, this will be implemented this way kind of thinking. Uh, and then if you understand the intentions of Islamic law, the purposes of Islamic law, the picture changes. I mean, a, a woman should be probably able to drive an SUV today um, between Mecca and Medina. I mean, it's, it's, there's no, nothing about the safety issue there. Here's another example about how literalism can create important problems and create important examples of authoritarianism in the name of religion. And this is an issue that I think is an important issue when we discuss Islam and democracy, Islam and liberal democracy especially. Uh, and that's why there's a whole chapter about this issue in my book, the final chapter of the book titled Freedom from Islam. This issue is the issue of apostasy. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about here? Apostasy, which means changing your religion. Like, for example, a Muslim wakes up one day and he says, I feel like I'm convinced by Buddhism or Christianity. I'm not a Muslim anymore. I have found a new religion and I'm following that new religion. That person becomes an apostate from Islam. He leaves Islam. Or a, a Christian who turns into, who converts into Islam would become an apostate from Christianity. It's just someone who deserts from religion and chooses another one. Now, in a free society, how should, be, how should this be evaluated? Well, it's that person's choice, right? What can you do? Uh, I mean, you can be sorry for that person if you still think that that religion is the right way, but, you know, it's just that person's choice. However, in Islamic, in classical schools of Islamic law, in the four main Sunni schools and the Shiite Jafari school, apostasy is considered as a crime, and the punishment for apostasy is the death penalty. I mean, you get executed if you say, I'm not a Muslim anymore. This became a big controversy uh, in 2006 when a man named Abdurrahman in Afghanistan, uh, obviously a, uh, someone who was born as a Muslim, he converted to Christianity, and this was found out by the authorities. He was put on trial, and he was given death penalty. He was given three days to rethink and recant. He didn't, and he was, he was going to be executed. The international community reacted. Luckily, the man was saved. He was released from prison out of a technicality. He fled to Italy, and he, he's safe and sound. But in Iran, another man named Yusuf Narakhani was, again, uh, put on trial for apostasy. He had become a Christian pastor, and he was executed. So there are cases like this in, in the Muslim world today, which, in a, un, I mean, not too surprisingly... Brings a lot of criticism and reaction, saying that you know religious freedom is not respected in these countries. Again, as a fellow Muslim, when I look at this first, I have an intuition. I say, "Well, wait a minute. This doesn't make sense. If somebody doesn't believe in Islam anymore, what can you achieve by saying you have to be still in the herd? At best, you can make him a hypocrite. Right? I mean, he can at best say, okay, I'm a Muslim, but in secret, he will be a Christian. And probably he will despise Islam more. I mean, what, what, what do we achieve here, right? And b besides violating his uh, fundamental rights. That's why we should look into this issue. And I did. And like many other scholars, I noticed something very interesting. I'm not a scholar. I mean, like the scholars, as a non-scholar, I mean, it's not a, I'm not an Ali or anything. <laughs> Humble writer on these issues. First of all, as I explained in the chapter, there is nothing in the Quran which bans apostasy. Actually, there are several verses in the Quran which vindicate religious freedom. Let there be no compulsion in religion, a verse in Surah Al-Baqarah states. 
The third is from your Lord. Let anyone who want to believe it, believe it. Let's, let anyone who want to disbelieve it, disbelieve it. States, in other words. There is nothing in the Quran which says apostates should be punished. The Quran says unbelievers will be punished by God in afterlife. But that's an afterlife. There's nothing to do with this world. And actually you're cutting it short by intervening as a, as a human agent you know, by God's, God's punishment. So according to the Quran, no, there could never ever be a death penalty. But the, any, any punishment. But where does it come from? Well, it comes from, and you look carefully, it comes from some of the sayings attributed to Prophet Muhammad. But especially how of those sayings were interpreted by medieval scholars in a medieval context. And when you look in that context, you see something interesting. The early Islamic scholars, the Hanafi, Shafi, you know, uh, Hanbali scholars, who were considering apostasy as a crime, we're considering apostasy as changing your side in a battle. Because the early Muslim community was at war with the pagans of Mecca and the polythe- polytheists and Sasanid Empire and the Byzantine Empire. So for them, apostasy meant some Muslim soldiers deserting from the Muslim army and joining the enemy. For example, you can see this clearly in the writings of Hanafi scholars. Uh, they say, uh, Hanafis are the, one of the four Sunni schools and the most flexible, I should say. Uh, Hanafi scholars said apostates will be punished only if they're males. Females don't count. This was not misogyny this time. This was simple recognition that women are not soldiers in medieval warfare. So only males were considered as a military threat. And when you understand this, you say, okay, it makes sense. In the modern world today, no army still allows what we would call high treason, joining the enemy. Uh, So when you look at the intention, it becomes something very different. And that's why today, important scholars like Hayrettin Karaman in Turkey, like Rashid Ghannoushi in Tunisia, uh, like several ayatollahs in Iran, they said apostasy in the medieval era was all about warfare. It has nothing to do with the modern world today. Today, if someone changes his or her religion out of a conviction, we cannot do anything about it. That's that person's choice. And they uphold uh, the idea that there should be no compulsion in religion. So when you look at the intentions of Islamic law, things change. Uh, And I think today we Muslims need, as argued by scholars like Rashid Ghanoushi and even Hayatin Karaman in Turkey, we have to renew our understanding of some of these classical Islamic uh, jurisprudence uh, uh, issues that sometimes create an obstacle with regards to individual freedom and uh, freedom of religion. But you can ask me, like, Mustafa, are you just coming to lecturing, lecturing to Western audiences with your wishy-washy liberal ideas and I'm just, are these so marginal ideas who have no, you know, like who know nothing, to con- uh, nothing to convince other Muslim world? Is this so marginal? You can ask me that. Well, I would say no. As I explained in my chapter, chapter 6, about the late Ottoman Empire and its important reforms, I show that actually most of these troubling issues from a liberal perspective were actually dealt with by the Ottomans. The Ottoman Empire in 1839 initiated a period that we call Tanzimat, reorganization in English. And in Tanzimat era, the Ottoman scholars, intellectuals and religious scholars, they, they try to incorporate Western liberal democracy to the Ottoman Empire to win the hearts and minds of the Serbs and the Bulgarians who are becoming more nationalists, but they tried to liberalize the empire. That's how they enacted a constitution, a pretty liberal constitution in 1876, which 
uh, echoed some of the ideas by John Locke, I must say, that every individual has inalienable rights. The Ottoman reformed, uh, made, made some important legal reforms. The ban on apostasy, the issue just was discussed, were rendered obsolete by Ottomans in 1840s. It became possible to change orders, and if you want to. The Ottoman Empire declared Jews and Christians as equal citizens of the empire. This is an issue that some Salafis still object to in Tunisia, in, in Egypt, and elsewhere. Uh, they open up schools for women. They open up their, their feminist clubs in the late Ottoman Empire. Ottoman intellectuals like Namu Kemal, who I quote in the book, he said, the idea, the Western idea of democracy is very compatible with the Quranic <coughs> principle of consultation or shura, and he built an argument for democracy. So today, I think it is important to go back to some of those Ottoman reforms in the Tanzimat era to see how the supreme Islamic authority, the caliphate, the Ottoman Empire, had actually reformed some of these laws. Uh, it's interesting that the Ottomans had some revolts against them because of these, revol uh, of these reforms. And uh, actually, the Wahhabi movement was basically a revolt against the Ottoman Empire, saying that Turks have become infidels by changing law. But then Ottoman scholar Ahmed Cevdet Pasha, as I explained in the book, he tried to explain that by, for example, banning slave trade, Islam, uh, Ottoman Empire is not violating Islamic principles, but actually serving Islamic principles. So some of those discussions in the 19th century are, I think, worth looking at today. And one more thing before I finish. There are like lessons to be learned from every Muslim society. And I think every Muslim society has its own history of Islam with its own, own cultural background. And, and all of them are valuable and important in their own ways. But as a Turk uh, coming from Turkey, let me tell you one thing, one lesson I take from the Turkish experience. As I said, the Ottoman experience itself is important with all the reforms. In Republican Turkey, something else began. Because Turkey became a secular republic by 1923. It was not technically called secular at the time, but it was a secular republic, and technically it was called secular uh, in the 30s. And I've been critical of the authoritarian part of that secularism. Like, you shouldn't ban people's headscarves or institutions. I mean, that part was wrong. But living under a secular state gave Turkey's Muslim another experience. They learned how to, how to live advance, articulate Islam without the support of a state. Uh, Islamic scholars like Said Nursi, when they saw that the government is not that friendly to religion at all, then they have to, as Muslims, have to work something to do. He did not want to establish an Islamic regime. He just wanted to have a democratic regime in which the religion will not be persecuted and religious practice would be allowed. And he just wanted to write books that advanced faith and, you know, proves and, and, and shows that God exists and afterlife exists and Islamic moral, moral teachings. His followers created charities, like schools, soup kitchens, you know, media institutions. In civil society, in other words, they learned how to articulate and advance Islam. And today, I'm happy to see that that, you know, effort in Turkey has led to interfaith dialogue institutions from even in the U.S. here. Uh, because I think... Those Muslims who have worked on the civil society level understood the very most fundamental thing about faith, any faith. If you want to nurture your faith, if you want to see godly people around you, if you want, you can't do this by having a religious police which will order people to do things and which will actually lead to hypocrisy. You can only do this by sharing your faith. And people 
But if you share your fate, maybe they'll be interested, maybe they'll be not. It's their choice, and you're not to judge them. It's theirs, God, to judge them. In other words, true religion flourishes not when you have a so-called religious regime, a state. It flourishes when you have a free society, when you have freedom as your basis. Therefore, I defend liberty, I defend liberalism, not at the expense of Islam, but for the sake of Islam. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you.